Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Today we have Amber with us. Amber is a dear friend, Kaufman Fellow as well. She's a managing partner at a Palestine's only active startup investment fund, Ibitkar Fund. For the past nine years, Amber has been directly involved in supporting Palestinian entrepreneurs as a program manager for Palestine and for a new beginning, PNB, a Palestinian non-profitable company focused on entrepreneur development. She was named as one of the 50 most influential women in the Arab world by the CEO, Middle East Magazine, and uh, 20 women VCs uh, of um, uh, Middle East and North Africa by Mena Bites. Amber has international MBA from the Third Bird uh, School of uh, Global Management and a marketing degree from Arizona State University. She's a member of uh, Kaufman Fellows. And uh, it's a pleasure and a honor to have you here, Amber. Thank you for joining us on this conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Laura, for having me. It's a pleasure. Amber, such a pleasure to have you here. We'd love to hear your story from the beginning, <laughs> your background, <laughs> where were you born? If you can tell us about your infancy and your upbringing, and we'll later on lead to what got you here. So <laughs> love to hear a little bit of Yeah. For sure. So it's a serendipitous ride of me saying yes to opportunities that were unexpected at times. I actually just wrote an email to Jeff Laura, who is our, uh, the president of Kaufman. And I said, you know, I was sort of, I was never meant to be a, a venture capitalist. <laughs> It is the most unimaginable thing, probably. So I was born to Mexican parents, Mexican immigrant parents to the U.S., I'm a first-generation American. My mother and my father sort of didn't go to college. My mom finished her college degree much, much later when I was probably in my 30s. Um, she went back to school. And I was from then a broken family. My parents divorced. My mother had to work many, many jobs to keep my brother and I going. Um, but I was always sort of very good at school. And that was my... What my mom always told me would be sort of the way out. Uh, and, and so I took that to heart. I um, received a scholarship to a prestigious high school in Arizona. And that sort of opened my eyes to a whole different world that wasn't that neighborhood that I grew up in. And it was, you know, you can do anything you want. You, you're smart enough. You, I learned how to write, which was a skill that, you know, in, in the schools where I had gone to wasn't really emphasized. And it's such a necessary skill, right? And so if you think about schooling in the U.S., we wrote essays in PE, <laughs> which was a, a black and white thing from all the schools I had gone to before. So that school opened opportunities for me. I then received a full scholarship to Arizona State University, which, you know, isn't the most prestigious school, but that scholarship and the people I met, again, were a turning point. Then also in high school, by the way, and this is, I'm saying this because it'll come back a full circle, I was chosen as a page of my congressman. 
And so he selected me to go to Washington, D.C. when I was just 16 years old. And, you know, politics then sort of became a focus of mine. And you'll see again, I'll, I'll mention how it turns back. And then I graduated from Arizona State with a marketing degree. I went to work for Wells Fargo Bank. And it was really fun, right? We were doing, I was working in marketing and we were doing really cool campaigns and buying all sorts of really fun giveaways. But it wasn't what I wanted because in that page program, I had met someone that worked at the World Bank and I loved it. I wanted to help the world. And I thought the World Bank was the way to do it. And this guy had told me, in your backyard is a school that can get you there, and that's Thunderbird. And so I remember, you know, in those days at Wells Fargo, I just getting sort of like this, I need more. I want to help. And so I then looked up Thunderbird, remembering this conversation, applied, and got another full ride. You know, it was a presidential scholar, they called it. And so then Thunderbird was, again, night and day development work, international development work. After I finished, I received an opportunity to do a fellowship in Jordan. And so when I applied to that fellowship, it was with USAID and um, US Agency for International Development. And they said, you know, what areas of the world do you want to work in? And so I wrote Latin America. Why? Because I'm Mexican-American, speak Spanish. And I wrote Asia and Africa. And so every call that I got was from the Middle East. It was Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. <laughs> and so I said, why? Okay, let's do it. And so, you know, it was typical American that knew, oh, there's conflicts in the Middle East. It's probably not the best, most safest place. But I didn't have any really deep understanding of what was happening here. But I accepted the position. I went to Jordan for a year and I ended up working for the Queen of Jordan, I, did a, a, I developed a national education award with Her Majesty Queen Rania. You know, again, who gets to do that sort of straight out of Thunderbird? <laughs> Me. Uh, <laughs> um, but in that time in Jordan, I met the first Palestinian I had ever met, or the first Palestinian I realized was Palestinian. And it was the man that cleaned the house of the woman that I was renting from. And his name is Omar, was Omar, likely. He's probably passed since then. But Omar used to carry his key to his house because he was a refugee, lived in a camp in a refugee camp in Jordan. And so, you know, he was telling me about his story and he said, don't worry, I will go back. Here's my key. <laughs> and I just remember just be, you know, shivers. Still, I get shivers thinking of that story. And that mm -hmm. was a Palestinian story. And that's where I said, I want to help Palestine tell its story. So I went back to my congressman again, who I had been his page for, and I said, is it true? Is it, you know, is this the way the sort of politics and development and all of this is tied together? And he said, come work for me. So I went to work for him. Again, like I was his legislative assistant and I worked on immigration policy, which was a nightmare, <laughs> as you can imagine, in the States. And I worked in foreign affairs for him and I saw how it worked and I said, I still need to help Palestine. I went to work then for another NGO that sent me back to Jordan, but I was doing Jordan and Palestine. And I was helping women be elected to parliaments and to local councils. Both countries had just done quotas for women. This is in 2016-ish, where then everything happened in Palestine, which was the big division. Hamas was elected to Congress, etc. It was an incredible time to be here. I then you know, left that organization and didn't, I wasn't ready to go back to the U.S. 
So I sent a bunch of emails to everybody. I said, I'm looking for a job. And I was hired, and this is where sort of everything turns again, by the Palestinian negotiations team, the PLO. And they wanted to help me help them tell their story to American audiences, especially Congress. So I did that for a glorious six months. It was an incredible experience. Then there was a leak from our office. I'm almost done. I should have warned you. This is a very long story. No, 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 man. Uh, I, 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 I have noticed that time goes by because it's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. Don't worry about it. We spend the whole day here. <laughs> so then they said, you know, there was a leak from our office to Al Jazeera. Close the office down. It was this big, horrible time. I was doing crisis management, you know, helping them manage this crisis. How do you deal with a leak? It was also during WikiLeaks by the way. So everybody thought it was a WikiLeak. It was not. It was directly. So then we said, okay, all of us are let go. Where do we end up? The chairman of Coca-Cola in Palestine hired me to run Palestine for a new beginning, which he had just become the chairman of. And then from there, we're, you know, a group of people, the biggest employers in Palestine. It was post-Arab spring. The whole world was changing, especially this region. And they said the biggest threat, they said the biggest threat to Palestine right now is our unemployment rate. At that time, until now, graduates of universities, the unemployment rate among graduates of universities is 50%. It is higher than the general population. So not only do you have a huge amount of youth that are underemployed and unemployed, you also have that educated youth. And so we said that's actually an opportunity. So then came the focus on entrepreneurship. We spent a lot of time doing competitions and trainings and, you know, startup weekends and hackathons. And finally, I said, if we don't do a fund, nothing is going to work. The private sector should be funding because everything else is being done by donors. It was being done by universities, etc. But there was no funding. So we started Iptikar, which is now what I manage. Um, it was the, back then the first early stage venture capital fund. We had had another one that was doing larger investments, but was struggling to find pipeline because no one was doing the early stage investments. So then we did that. It was a small fund, $10.5 million. We invested that. We're now raising, and we've just launched our second fund, which is target of $30 million, so more than double what we had. We've had some great companies, and I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the conversation. But that is my serendipitous story to venture. <laughs> oh, my God. 11 <laughs> minutes worth. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, congratulations. Yeah. Your trajectory in terms of uh, the size of the funds is pretty similar to what we did. And uh, yeah, we also had to evangelize pretty much the market because the families from Brazil didn't have a location in, um, in venture capital. So I would love to jump into this and uh, understand how was the effort and how was the construction of uh, the relationships with the people, companies and wealthy individuals that could uh, fund the VC funds? How was it? Yeah. So it, it was probably very similar, right? The majority of wealth here is concentrated on real estate and, you know, sort of very traditional investments. So it was a hard sell. But we, what we had going for us, so we had those two champions. So we had the guy from Coca-Cola, Zahi Khoury. Um, and we also had Hashim Shawa, who's the chairman of Bank of Palestine. And so because they came in, then they leveraged their network. And having those champions really helped us raise. The second close then came in the DFI, so the IFC, the Dutch Good Growth Fund. 
that has helped us really institutionalize the fund. And the fact that we have them on board then brings on other institutions for a fund too. So that's what we've been able to leverage. Yeah, very similar. We had uh, the IGB also coming on our third fund, actually. So it was the beginning of something more institutionalized and uh, very, very interesting. Amber, so we've heard that you, we've read that you always had a focus on women founders. And how did the statistics of the percentage of female founders and percentage of dollars going to female founders differ in Palestine compared to the U.S.? Just like an idea ballpark, what is the differences that you see? Yeah, so that's something that is actually shocking to a lot of people. We're doing much better than the West and sort of more developed countries. So currently in our portfolio, 40% of our founders are women and 30% of the employees of our portfolio companies are women. Um, so throughout, so from senior level to tech development throughout the companies, you know, that is for, I think, a couple of reasons. If you look at sort of our education system, the majority of students are women. And what's happened is that we used to lose them um, as soon as they graduated because, you know, it was the culture here is not really is women should get married. Um, women should get married, stay home and have kids, which is probably similar to some countries in Latin America. And so now what are, people are able to do, though, is because there's flexibility in working for startups. Uh, so people can work from home. People, you know, can do different things because you're just really, really needing a computer and an Internet connection. And that solves some issues. Then they're seeing a really strong path. The second thing I think that has really helped us attract women is having me. And I, I say that humbly. Uh, but having women around the decision-making table. And I think that attracts other women and that makes other women more comfortable. And what I've seen is that they come to us, and I, so I have a colleague, uh, there's three of us on the fund, and so two of us are women. They come to us long before they're ready to present to Epticat officially for advice, for you know, sort of mentorship. And that really helps comfort them as to what it means to have an, a venture capital investor in their companies. That's been important. And I think that is the key, honestly, to getting more women founded is to have more women in the VC decision-making tables. That's very interesting because here in Brazil, although we have like almost a half and half of uh, students, but the STEAM um, careers are still dominated by men. And do you have the same issue with uh, math and uh, computer science? No. And no, you don't. Oh, so that's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. No. So the top students in STEM are women. And so that is such, you know, it's a huge loss if we can't take those top students and give them opportunities, right? Where they can really flourish as mothers, as wives, and as professionals. So that's, what I think, something that's so important in what we do is giving those examples, providing those opportunities. And so for me, it's one of my, you know, soapboxes, right? <laughs> like we need to fund more women and we need to fund more companies that support women's needs and, and respond to women's needs. So it's not only funding women for the sake of funding women, right? It's we need to think about women as markets. Totally. As opportunity to, um, to serve, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And what is your thesis, I mean, uh, for a Bitcar fund? Um, what kind of opportunity you are currently investing on and, and this kind of thing? The first focus is Palestine. So we, we invest in Palestinian founders. Fund two, Palestinian founders anywhere in the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa region. And the second thing is early stage, pre-Series A. The third thing is uh, tech-enabled. So 
websites, platforms, apps, SaaS, but sector agnostic because then we've already limited ourselves a bit too much with the first three. But definitely, you know, very opportunistic in terms of tech. What's really exciting is now we're starting to look at sort of all of these metaverse, blockchain, NFTs, you know, so many new acronyms. But we can really be very wide. And sometimes I, I feel a bit crazy when we have our portfolio company meetings because I go from, you know, e-commerce websites that sell lingerie in Saudi Arabia to logistics to real estate. And, <laughs> but it's really fun, for sure. And most of the companies start in the region. And do they have plans to go abroad? What else? Uh, how is the international expansion that they foresee, uh, most of them? Because here in Brazil, most of uh, the companies uh, dream about going uh, Latin. What could be the case for international expansion in your region? Yeah, I think similarly. So we're looking at companies. So in terms of markets, they should not be Palestine only. But our market is small. You know, it's five million people and limited income. That, you know, it, everybody has to look at a, at, a, at a market that's wider than Palestine. And so that's typically MENA. And the opportunity we see in the Middle East is that if you look at the West, so if you look at the US or Europe, you have about eight websites per person. Here you have two. There is an opportunity to create companies for MENA and to create content in Arabic. And that continues. And so, you know, the market-wise, MENA is big. Um, we look a lot of the Gulf because of their purchasing power. They create companies for them. But we also can look at companies that are doing anything globally. So our first investment is U.S. focused. They sell real estate data in, in the U.S. market. But honestly, given the experience of Palestinians, it is mostly MENA focused. How would you describe the maturation of the market over, I guess, the last six, seven years? Do you compare yourself loosely to any other markets or is it a total different ballgame? So first, in terms of maturation, when we first started, we would do a hackathon and see ideas that were very much focused on Palestine. You know, maybe an app to help people get through the checkpoint or something very, very local. Now we are seeing much more experienced entrepreneurs, meaning they're not just graduated from their universities. They've been in their industries for some time. They've put their own money into developing a product. So before we would invest in those ideas that we could, right, the regional ones. And then we would give them money to develop a product. I'm sorry for the noise. Give them money to develop the product. And then, you know, they would start selling. Now we're coming in where the product is ready. The, you know, founders put in their own money. They develop the product. They have initial traction. And we're giving them money to start selling much wider than Palestine. So the risk is lower. They have more experience, more developed companies. Um, so that's in terms of maturation. Now, in terms of benchmarking, you know, because, again, we have to look outward very quickly, we benchmark ourselves against all the countries in MENA. And one of our selling points is that Palestinians are really all over the MENA region, and they're very successful. For years, they've been the doctors, the engineers, um, the business leaders in the region. And so now we're exporting tech. So we're starting to do a lot of outsourcing from Palestine, etc. So we remain sort of an engine of growth. And so how do we grow those companies from Palestine to serve the region? And so we're benchmarking ourselves from the beginning to the region, to the Gulf countries like Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, to the Levant companies like Jordan, Syria, 
um, and even North Africa, like Egypt. And how is funding available for later stages round? I mean, what is the strategy for continued fundraising? Yeah, that's something that's been an issue, honestly. Because there isn't another fund in Palace, we have to raise from the region very quickly. And so then that means that we either attract co-investors to join us uh, in the next round, or they have the traction to be able to attract investors directly. What's happened in Fund 1 is the first what we hope to happen in fund two, because we're able to give more money from the get-go, is you know are able to press them, the gas on sales and marketing, and then can actually start attracting regional investors for their next round. I'm curious, does the Israeli tech influence the market in Ramallah as being so geographically close? Absolutely. It's a bit sensitive, of course. You know, we are a captive market for Israel, <laughs> so there's so much interrelationship. Our economies are absolutely tied by agreements, etc. One is that you have two million Palestinians that are still in Israel, that are citizens of Israel, that have Israeli education. They go to the top universities, Tekdion, etc., you know, the MIT of Israel. They have experience working for Israeli tech startups and companies. They have experience working for all the multinationals that are in Israel, but they're discriminated by Israeli venture capital. So we have that opportunity that lies there in expertise and in for us and companies that we can fund. Then we have now outsourcing, as I said, but it's not only outsourcing where you have Israeli companies, you know, outsourcing in Palestine. Now you have everyday hundreds of Palestinians crossing those checkpoints and going into Israel directly and working for these companies. So for us, you know, I think about it in terms of, you know, again, because of I'm Mexican, NAFTA. When NAFTA happened in Mexico, we were the laborers of NAFTA, right, as Mexicans. We were the workers at the maquinadoras, and there was opportunity and there was jobs finally. But what Mexico failed to do was think about what happens when all those jobs go to China. We didn't think of it, and you ended up with a lot of unemployed people and a huge depression. Now here, we need to be ready, right? When those companies, when there's a cheaper labor source for Israeli tech that is more afford that is accessible and affordable, what happens to all those Palestinians that got those great skills? We need to have companies here ready to absorb them, and we need to have capital ready to fund them. And so that's where we see also an opportunity, but absolutely. It is like being Mexico being next to the U.S. It is definitely tied and there's definitely opportunities as well as, of course, challenges to it. And um, that's very interesting. And talking further about the challenges, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine uh, puts uh, pressure overall in, on supply of grains to North African countries. Is that something that concerns you or could revert the trend of uh, development and, and inclusion that you see in your, in your region? It's Ukraine has been a really interesting case for me because so I've been here for 12 years now and conflict has been ongoing in this region the entire time. And that, you know, Laura, you were mentioning this before we started. This is the first time that really the West has seen conflict in quite some time and felt it. And that's different for us. You know, we're used to conflict. We are sort of, it's, it happens every day. We probably have horrible PTSD from dealing with it. But Ukraine has already started to affect us as it has all of you, right? You know, gas prices are up. The attention of the world is elsewhere. Israeli tech relied heavily on Ukrainian uh, tech workers. So they are also very affected. And so what does that mean again for jobs for Palestinians? There's an opportunity there probably. 
But in terms of sort of understanding what it means to have war at your doorstep, to really understand conflict, occupation, all of that, Palestinians are probably very well versed at it and they, they feel it deep. One thing that has been difficult has been realizing that, you know, it, this is probably going to be a bit controversial, but why is it that Ukraine is getting so much attention and all the conflict that happened in has been happening in the region for so long? Again, 12 years I've been here and conflict has been nonstop, not only in Palestine. Why haven't we seen that level of attention elsewhere? Um, and that's something that we are, as, as humans, I really think, have to think about, you know, the humanity of war everywhere. Totally. It's the feeling that you mentioned that you actually live with that conflict around you all the time that people just don't realize how expensive and how costly it is to the population that, that has to uh, thrive considering the situation. So it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I guess this is a good question to wrap up our conversation. We usually end up with some philosophical question to get your viewpoint on a few aspects around it. So the first, how optimistic are you with the future of life and humanity, especially after mentioning some of these local and global conflicts? Look, I think as we see, we're eternal optimists, right? I think we sort of believe in what a lot of people often find unbelievable. And I think that especially being a VC in Palestine or in a place like Palestine where conflict thrives, you have to be an optimist and you have to believe so deeply in every single company and every single founder that you invest in. And I think, so definitely I'm an optimist and I definitely see that peace will come from the youth and peace will come not from the political leadership because I think a lot of times you thrive from it, um, but It'll come from these young men and women who are doing things despite conflict. And that, again, are seeing people as humans. They're not seeing them as, you know, others that, you know, sort of just want to make great things to solve great problems. So definitely eternal optimist. And I will, <laughs> I will continue to be an eternal optimist because even living in a place like this, there are rays of sunshine every single day. Oh my God. <laughs> Wonderful. And more specific, uh, when you think about uh, how innovators can uh, address the issues and problems uh, that we face, what is specific you see on your region uh, really moving the needle for, for the population and what kind of uh, solution you, you actually think that will change the landscape uh, even more? So it's not necessarily a solution, but it's disruption. It's disruption of industries, of conglomerates, of society, honestly. Like, you know, I think that technology can create change, can make change accessible to people and give a voice that, you know, isn't necessarily at the ballot box, but is very powerful. We see banks that have operated in a traditional manner forever being disrupted by fintech startups Uh, in ways that it, probably they never thought they would be. And that, that not only that, right? It's real estate, it's education, it's, you know, now with COVID work, uh, it's healthcare. I think that probably anyone that has been in industries that were, that haven't been innovated for some time, that have operated in, in you know, sort of how the way they've operated for many years, are they're trembling and, you know, their knees are shaking a bit because, Technology is not going to leave anyone behind. And it's the same for governments. And it's the same for transparency. The opportunity with blockchain and with putting that power back to people is incredible. 
So I think the entire region and the entire world will be disrupted. So putting on the sustainability lens now, how far can you dream that our world will create solutions that we need for sustainability? And does that in any way drive your investment decisions? It was funny because I'm just going through our review of our ESG policies, so you know, environmental, social, and governance policies. And, you know, I think that as investors, we have a responsibility to lead on this. And I think that it is our responsibility to be asking those tough questions and to be making decisions that are aligned with those policies and those values. And unfortunately, ESG, so it's been top down for us. Of course, I say that in the sense of You don't see that in the U.S. or in other markets. So ESG, we are thinking about it, but are the huge funds in the U.S. thinking about it? Are pension funds that are investing in these big funds thinking about it? And they should be, because then we would be looking at companies in a completely different manner. Then you wouldn't have, you know, sort of the issues of data privacy that we have now. You, you would have thought about that long before And inclusivity would be there. You wouldn't be struggling with only 2% of funding going to women because funds would be saying, we need to attract more women because it is within our values, even if it's top down, right? I think that's how it starts. That's, that's how things have changed in society for a very long time. So sustainability has to be part of our jobs as investors. And I, I say that wholeheartedly, and I really hope that fund, you know, investors all over the world really sort of start thinking about this. It shouldn't be only the developing world thinking about what is the sustainability of our investments. Totally. Moving to our final icebreaker. Um, we love to collect the answers from people. From people. Tell us uh, something that uh, currently excites you and uh, currently scares you about. Excites? What? So I'm excited about getting going on fund two um, and, right. and seeing incredible companies already. I'm excited about hearing... You know, with Kaufman Lauda, you know as well, we're part of all these SIGs. And so the blockchain SIG and all of these things. Yeah. All SIG means special interest group for all of you that are not Kaufman. Yeah. And it's nonstop and it's moving faster than I certainly are. But it's exciting. It's really cool to be in the middle of it and watching it and having an opportunity to invest in these companies. Um, what scares me? Again, I live in a country that is very volatile. I have two, two kids. I have a seven-year-old boy and a seven-month-old girl. And it scares me to, you know, when I gave birth to my son, I had never thought about this. I had never sort of, you know, I knew that I was marrying a Palestinian and then I was choosing a life that would be difficult. But when I had my son, I said, how will I keep him safe? How will I keep him from becoming angry and throwing stones at military tanks? And that is something that I think is deep inside mothers in Palestine because it is the occupation is pervasive and the violence of it is pervasive. And when you're a 16-year-old teenager anywhere, you're driven by a sort of a whole different set of things here, right? Um, and then it's a difficult thing to think about as a mother. And so that scares me. It scares me every morning and every day. And just as a as a curiosity or in a follow up question, because I, I can't uh, I can't just not ask, how does the mothers or the the community of, of mothers in schools and this kind of things work together to address and to and to talk to kids since the beginning on the awareness and mindfulness of this? Yeah, look, I think that yeah, I wish I could show you. I can't. I can show you too, but not everybody online. Yeah, not everybody. <laughs> There's a wall that runs 
very, you know, next to our office. And that's that separation barrier between Israel and Palestine. And what the wall has done is it's separated the people more than anything. So right now, my son will not know an Israeli except as a soldier or a settler. He won't be able to see them unless we see them outside. And I think that's hurtful. And it's the same for the other side. They're not meeting regular Palestinians and we're not meeting regular Israelis. And I think that is definitely hurtful. And that's what the wall has done. It is a physical separation of people. My son goes to a Quaker school. Um, we have one of the few Quaker schools in the world is in Palestine. It's one of the few. It's incredibly old. Quaker values, of course, are all about peace and, and solidarity, etc., and justice. And that's great. And I think that the biggest challenge is, again, keeping the violence away from them. It's on the TV. It's every day. They see it. They feel it. You know, my son's uh, classmate's father was arrested. And every Palestinian knows somebody that is in jail, a political prisoner. So it's impossible to avoid. So how do you teach it? And that, I have to be honest with you, I, I don't know yet. I don't know how you, how you raise a young man to not be angry and to be kind. But I have seen it. And I have seen incredible young people come out of this place that are aware of what justice and dignity mean in a way that I haven't seen in the U.S. or in Latin America, maybe in Latin America, because we've also seen great injustice. But, you know, they're self-aware, they're aware of the world, and they are very, you know, sort of these citizens of the world that probably all of us should want. So I will get back to you on how we do it. <laughs> but I think that it's, a lot of it is just education and travel and opening their eyes to everything else that is outside of this country. Oh, oh my God. May humanity find dignity to all of us. Um, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. This was a beautiful conversation. Uh, yeah, beautiful and open conversation. Thank you both. It's a pleasure to be on. It's a pleasure to meet you, Carolina and Laura, to see you again. Um, you know, best of luck as you face challenges that Brazil is, is facing and And as we all face challenges as humanity, but again, we're in the middle of it, right? We have the power to create change just through our investments in those companies that we support. And anything, uh, we can help you on um, fundraising and everything because we've been through the same um, challenges. And uh, Carolina joined us also to help on us on this front. And uh, we are kind of creating a playbook also to work and to be more efficient on our conversations with uh, wealthy family and individuals, family offices and so forth in Brazil. So anything that we can help you on exchanging ideas and uh, building your playbook, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, count at us. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise, if I can do anything mm -hmm. for you guys. And please come visit. I know it sounds scary, but it really no, is I, quite I helpful. do want yeah. I'm, Me I'm, too. Uh, I was waiting yeah. for, my, for COVID to finish and my kids to grow a little bit so that they can uh, understand the history behind and then we'll definitely go please <laughs> Ahlan, it's welcome in arabic you're welcome we will have an extra bedroom in our new home so please do come oh, thank you so much thank you Amber. thank you Amber. have a wonderful day thank you again